giveaway. It's not just another regular old BS giveaway, but it's a way to raise awareness to the Wild Sheep Society's Act Now campaign. We're giving away a Kafaru pack, a Wubby, a Frontiersman gear knife, a full set of Sitka Storm front gear. Hell, we're even going to throw in some shirts and a hat from our store. The whole goal is to get people to be aware of the Act Now campaign and really send the message that our community wants wildlife to be managed by science, not by whoever celebrity is yelling the loudest. To sign up, get over to our Instagram, at Wilderness Locals, and look for the photo of the sheep with the Act Now giveaway graphic. Get on it, folks. Let's make a difference. episode 51 of the Wilderness Locals podcast. On this episode, our guest is Chris Barker. Chris is a director at the Wild Sheep Society and has been involved with conservation in BC for over 30 years. This podcast is brought to you by Kafaru International, the toughest hunting gear on the planet, bar none. Frontiersman gear, high quality, completely custom, handmade knives made in the heart of the peace country. And as always, we're brought to you by Just Shooting Arrows, BC's premier archery shop. been involved with wild sheep society for over 25 years now i think mm-hmm. um started off with the rocky mountain health foundation when they were in canada and um co-chaired the chapter in victoria and we did about three or four banquets and then they pulled out of canada and then i kind of was looking around and some of my buddies were talking about the wild sheep society so we went to a convention and did a couple of conventions and then they were looking for the treasurer on the board. So that's kind of how I got involved and always got an interest in conservation and, you know, kind of giving back and just kind of got into the hunting thing, but it kind of, it kind of went hand in hand, um, you know, being in the outdoors hunting, but also uh, the conservation component and actually trying to look after habitat. And obviously the emphasis on that now is, um, more on the landscape for everybody that's involved right Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like um it seems like wild sheep society's focus has changed a little bit or maybe maybe they've become more vocal in the last little bit about um all of hunting not just sheep yeah it was one of those evolutions i mean it you know as a a group um there's, there's a kind of a group of five or six of them been there almost from the beginning um for, for basically the same amount of time as I've been involved. So we're still kind of hanging around and then mm-hmm. we've got a great board with all these young guys that are involved. And, you know, we were always focused on wild sheep conservation and habitat and disease and, you know, all the nuances that go along with the sheep. And then as things have rolled along and we don't seem to be getting, I'm cautious how I say this, but, um, you know, I think a lot of hunters' voices weren't being heard or we weren't being corrected. Mm-hmm. And we kind of recognize that because we've all, you know, we're all hunters and we were, you know, we're passionate about sheep, but we've, we hunt other species as well. But, you know, we had, I had a meeting with the Liberal Party uh, before the last election and um, Cora Lee from Cornell, she posed the question, she goes, well, why, why is sheep... Um, doing okay and other animals aren't. I said, because we've got a, they've got a voice and they've got an advocacy group for those other species don't have that voice or that advocacy um, representing or, or bringing it to the light or, you know, either political, um, 
the non-hunting public or any of those those measures that we're all trying to represent now and trying to get our message out about who we are, why we do it, um, what it represents to wildlife and the habitats and the landscape. Um, even, you know, for wildlife, even for, you know, for whatever use that outdoor purpose may be. So I think that that's the shift is that, you know, for a small membership, I think we're over a thousand now, but, you know, a few years ago, we were only 350, but we started making, you know, we didn't, we didn't want to take on more that we could chew off, right? We didn't want to outrun our headlights and like, you know, there's all those para- paraphrases you can use there, but yeah. Um, I think that's part of why our membership's grown is because of what we're saying and how we're saying it and how inclusive we've been throughout Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward. Yeah. Wow. So you've been at it a long time and, uh, I, we were just saying a minute ago, you, you started off in, you said Vernon, right? Yep. Started off hunting in Vernon. And basically I usually start these things with, uh, you know, who are you? What, did you? what do you do? And how did you get started hunting? But I think folks may already uh, have figured it out that you're Chris Barker from Wild Sheep Society, BC. You're one of the directors there and you've been there, like you said, for 25 years. And uh, sounds like you started off in Vernon. So I guess if I'm, I'll just back up a bit more, Tyler. Yeah, I, please. Uh, I, was actually, I was actually born in the UK. Um, lived in the UK until I was about 10. So when I lived in the UK, I used to, my grandfather used to take me fishing at the dams um, in, around Sheffield and we'd go fishing. And that's kind of what started the interest in the outdoors was uh, fishing with my grandfather. So when we emigrated to Canada, we moved to George and we were in Prince George for just a couple of years and then we moved down to Vernon and then when we moved to Vernon my grandparents immigrated and they ended up living with us so I continued fishing with my grandfather and we did a lot of rainbow trout fishing and as I got older I friends around Vernon and you know they've been lifelong hunting by so one of my best friends in Vernon I still hunt with them not as often as we used to but uh, <laughs> we pretty well talk once a week and we still try and get out there and started off doing the archery thing and you know, hunting grouse, wielding, and just kind of blossom from there. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so you've kind of seen a lot of changes in the province over over the years then. Yeah, it's definitely changed from when I got in, you know, basically started hunting in the 80s and, you know, meal deer numbers in the Okanagan Valley were, you know, we thought they were okay at the time. You know, by today's standards, it's like, oh my goodness, it was it was unbelievable, you know, hunting mule deer um, in that area. And we, you know, we didn't really hunt. There wasn't a lot of moose around the Okanagan at that time, mm-hmm. and we just we just kind of focused on mule deer and um, on white-tailed deer a little bit, and you know, a bit of bear hunting. On them. But you know, if we were going to go moose hunting, we were heading up north. Um, we didn't really bother with the LEH stuff in the Chilcote and or in the Kootenays. We just went right to you know around Dawson Creek. We started moose hunting up there. Mm-hmm. So that's. You know, you see that shift up there, and we've seen the shift up there. We were moving something up there, and then we started, you know, we're driving around, and we see, we're seeing deer all over the place. And, you know, being from Vernon, both me and Rod were right into me old deer hunting. And my buddy goes, Oh, what do you want to shoot those things for? And so we actually got in a mule deer hunt, and we were driving up there, and it was nothing to see 
over 200 mule deer in the morning, mm-hmm. um, driving around, driving around Dawson Creek. And, um, you know, as resource extraction took over and roads and ingress, it increased access. They opened up the hunting seasons, they opened up those seasons and you just saw that that population decline mm-hmm. to where it's, you know, it's, it, it's almost tragic. Well, it is tragic from what it was to what it is now. Mm-hmm. And how do we go about recovering that component um, and actually putting the focus on conservation and, and wildlife and populations and trying to reestablish that just for, for the next generation to come in. And that's kind of what I look at is, is I think we missed... When you when the change happens, it's so gradually you don't recognize it until you look back and say, "Okay, where did that go? And what are we missing?" And it's like, "What could we have done?" And I don't, you know, as you get older, you don't realize the nuances of what you could, what we could have done. Um, and I think that's part of what's happening now. And it's great to see our membership and the the age. I'll go age class, but you know, so many younger members and people like yourself, Tyler, and our board, um, they're all, you know, in those in the thirties. Um, whereas we're getting a bit long on the tooth, but you know, <laughs> those guys are the ones that are they're they're recognizing and they're listening to what's what's happening and they and they've I guess they've seen the nuances of the changes and what's going on in the landscape. So I think that's you know, it's, it's driving a whole bunch of stuff, but it's that whole shift has occurred, you know, whether it was moose, whether it was elk, whether it was mule deer. Um, you know, we, we could talk about predators, but I think they seem to be holding their own right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, grizzly bear numbers are going to be going up um, with the loss of that season. So there's all those dynamics that have come into play, but and then like I say, the habitat component and forestry. So it depends on so many rabbit holes we could go down. Yeah. Um, but I'll kinda I'll kinda let you guide us a little bit there, Tyler. Yeah, for sure. Um before before we get too far into some of the uh the more nuanced stuff and and kind of what uh what you're up to at, at wild sheep and what the focuses are there. Um, I'd love to hear kind of how you got bit by the sheep bug and, 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 and I know you said, you said you were big over, you were into uh Rocky mountain elk, elk foundation where they were in, when they were in BC um, or in Canada rather. Um, what was Rocky mountain elk foundation instrumental in some of the transplants that happened back then? Um, they were part and parcel of some of them. Um, they were more focused on the habitat stuff. They did move some of the elk around. Um, there was a lot of habitat stuff that went on the Kootenays. Um, and I, I'm just trying to remember the dates, whether some of the funding went to the orig- original transplants um, from Vancouver Island. And I think it may have been just after the Elk Foundation disappeared, but... Um, definitely HCTF and potentially Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation transplants from Vancouver Island over to Seashell and Powell River. Um, we're, you know, we're key to see those populations just explode and, and blossom and expand like they have, um, up, up Pitt River and the Harrison and all that country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but they were, um, they were more focused on habitat stuff. Um, and, and you know, it, it, 
And, and maybe that was part of the dynamic of why um, they kind of ended up fading away. It was more, you know, the chap, the banquets chapter component was, was fun and it was great. And we were raising this money, but you know, we, we didn't really see how the money was spent or where it was benefiting on the ground. And, um, you know, kind of diving into a little bit of what I do now for Wild Sheep Society BC on the projects chair. But to me, our members need to know where our money is going on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that may be a carryover from the Elk Foundation that I didn't really know where the money was going or how it was spent. And to me, that's a big, you know, it's not a, a weight, but it's uh, a responsibility, I feel, that what our, as our members step up and, and they support all our fundraising mechanisms, uh, be it raffles, conventions, uh, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're trying to get as much money back on the ground and, it, and it's so critical that uh, we can communicate that back to our members that this is where your money's going. This is how it's benefiting wildlife on the landscape. This is what it's doing for sheep. But it's going to help meal deer moose or wherever we're doing whatever we're doing on the landscape. Um, so I think it's 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 tied in, but you know, sheep has definitely driven that that component. And I think you were heading down that question of how I got, I always had a passion for sheep, and I'm not sure why it was there or what, <laughs> what started the driving component. Um, I always knew I wanted to hunt sheep. And I, I probably said this on another podcast, but um, I was flying with my dad from Vernon down to Penticton. We were flying over Okanagan Mountain Park, and I knew there was sheep in the area. I'd never seen a sheep in there, but I was. We were flying over right where the fire burned the park, and I was thinking that looks like it should be good sheep hunting, sheep hunting, you know, sheep country. And I think it was probably 12 or 15 at the time. So I had no concept at all of what it was about or what it was doing. So, um, so that was probably my first real interest in sheep. And then, you know, that sheep hunt when we finally got into the mountains and the whole, the whole ball of wax, it was like, okay, this is just unbelievable. I mean, nothing really compared to it. So I think that started the initial interest in the sheep and the sheep hunting and the sheep conservation. <laughs> that kind of got got the the needle into the vein. Yeah, <laughs> they, they say if you're going to be a sheep hunter, you're either going to love it or hate it. And if you get bit by the sheep hunt bug, you're done. I always refer to it as like the mob. Once you're in, you're never getting out. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. Uh, um, I need to spend my time in in the woods wisely. Then and maybe uh, maybe hold off. Doing, doing any more sheep hunting in the, in the near future. I have a lot of stuff that I want to accomplish. <laughs> yeah, I would I'd just do whatever you can do. And if it's, if you can get, if you can get your one sheep hunter, two sheep hunts in a year, do it. Don't you'll never regret it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. You were saying how you, you feel it's important Um for the members to know where their money is going. And something that really surprised me with uh, wild sheep society is when I signed up to be a monarch member, the uh, um, guys over there, you know, they shoot you an email and Hey, where do you want us to spend this money? It's like kind of, kind of blew my mind a little bit, you know? Yeah, it was, and that was one of the things that when we were doing it is we don't want to, you know, obviously supporting fundraising, we want members to be able to feel like 
they had the say where they wanted their money to go and where they wanted to have the most affected. It was near and dearest to their heart. So mm-hmm. you know, if you if you're saying you wanted to go to disease research or um to heritage or whatever whatever the options are, the, the members have the choice of that because I think it also drives ownership for somebody that's making that significant contribution that they do have an important say or they have to say where their money is going to go and they can feel like they own it. So, and again, it comes back to being, I think, that responsibility from the Sheep Society of of that interaction between the members. We're not just, you know, here's your magazine, here's your stuff. We're trying to make that personal connection, right? As As you become more successful, it gets tougher to be um, that intimate with as many members as we're getting. But um, like I said, we have a great board and we try and reach out and talk to as many people as we can. And like you said, it's it's a family, right? It's the Sheep family. Um, mm-hmm. WSF, uh, Sheep Foundation in the U.S. Um, that's our motto at the convention, you know, welcome to the Sheep family. And, and, and it truly is, right? You can talk to people that are so passionate about sheep and they're so... They're so like-minded, um, yeah, and, and it's really you're really seeing it in British Columbia now. It's really cool to see uh, mm-hmm. how these dynamics have played out. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. I mean, I mean, like, I think when I signed up, there was 516 guys ahead of me for life, and like 90 guys ahead of me for Monarch. I mean, that's substantial. Yeah, and you know the buy-in from the membership. I can't even mean, remember we were. Uh, when we first started the late membership and uh, what we used to charge for it. And, uh, and, you know, to try and get to a hundred was almost, you know, the one hurdle. So it's like, it's like each number becomes a hurdle right in there. I think um, I was just talking to Michael Serby, our executive director um, last week. And uh, he said, we're at nine T five Monarch members right now. Um, so, you know, something for somebody to look out. We are going to keep 100. So I don't know if I'm letting the cat out of the bag here, but didn't hear it first now. But uh, at next year's convention, we're going to auction off uh, Monarch number 100 off of the convention. Oh, nice. Nice. That's cool. Um yeah, well, you, you, I guess I guess you're you're letting the cat out of the bag then. Um, it, so since you're the uh, the kind of projects chair, um, maybe we should talk about the kind of six places that you can kind of put put your cash when you um, when you become a, I think it's life member, right? You that's when you do that, or is it monarch? I can't remember. It's it's monarch. So you, you to in order to become a monarch member, you've got to become a life member first. Yeah. Uh, so you become a life member, and then you can join up as a monarch member. And then we have, and I shouldn't know how many different levels of monarch membership we have, but we've kind of made it so that it it can be unlimited. Uh, but your original monarch membership was fifteen hundred dollars. Um, you can't you become a monarch member. And we have a payment plan set up, so it's not onerous for somebody to make that commitment. We can do it over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go to a silver um, and a gold. And I think we're up to, I think it's a platinum. I think it's 50,000. Yeah. Um, and some guys are heading towards 100,000 components. So it's it's unbelievable the buy-in that we've got through this program. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So then, then like you said, so we've got the different levels of the Monarch membership, and then obviously those members can direct the firms where they want to go. So one of them is um, disease research or disease mitigation. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter Heritage, which is our one campfire program, um, which is strictly about educating the non-hunting public about conservation, um, getting in the outdoors. Um, if you haven't seen it, um, I've always got stuff on Facebook and Instagram at, um, at one campfire. Mm-hmm. Which is, um, so that money was a lot of it's been driven through our Hunter Heritage Program, which is a, um, a contribution component. Uh, um, we've done land acquisitions in the Granby. We've done two land acquisitions in the Granby to secure um, wild sheep habitat for California bighorn sheep around Grand Forks. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, that was another opportunity for your monarch dollars to go on the ground. And then we did some fundraising around that component, which was supported unbelievably um, and allowed us to make significant contributions for those land purchases. Um, it can go to other. So other is, um, if you don't know where you want the money to go, other is what's the most needed component of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, whether it's... Um, you know, it can be a membership drive, it can be supporting our yearly bills, it could be um, a project that we have that's come from nowhere that we need to direct funds to. Um, so that one's really left up to the board where that other other money goes. Um, and then we have other projects, so, you know, we're doing well on the Fraser. Um, I won't dive too deep into that one yet, but... Um, we're doing the treatment component on trying to um, make wild sheep birds maybe free on the Fraser River. Um, and then the, we've got um, burning projects um, up north. Mm-hmm. And we're doing, doing some invasive weeds. We've got all these projects out there. And then, so anybody can say, yeah, I would like my money to go to that project. So it could be weeds in the cooties, or it could be a burn up north. It could be disease testing on wild sheep and on stone sheep. Um, so there's so many options for members to direct their funds. It's, um, and it's, I don't know if any other wild sheep chapter in the field of WSF that has the same component that we do with our month membership. So um, we just thought it was a great idea for our members to be able to have that choice of their where they want to go and, and make a difference. Yeah. That they feel they're making a difference. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, sure. It sure makes you feel involved when you, when you get that email and they ask that question, I had to, uh, I had to ask a half dozen people. I asked, uh, I asked you guys as treasurer, Greg, that I chat with quite a bit there, or secretary rather. And, uh, I asked, uh, my hunting mentor, Ronnie too, and they had, they had conflicting answers. So I had a hard decision. Yeah. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a good thing to have, right? It's like, a, not have those choices. Um, you know, I think we need to be doing that much out there to help our wild sheep populations, then that's what we need to be doing. And, you know, one of the things we did a few years back with the board was our goal was to have wild sheep projects in every region where there was wild sheep. Mm-hmm. And for the last three to four years, we've managed to achieve that. We've got wild sheep 
projects in Region 3, Region 4, Region 5, Region 6, Region 7, uh, both A and B, and Region 8. Nice. Um, and that, so, you know, we want to make sure that everybody's kind of covered. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is developed with the regional biologists um, throughout the province. Um, and, that you know, that's another great relationship that we've managed to build over the years working with our regional bios that mm-hmm. we can have that rapport and that trust with them that, you know, we can say we're we're interested in doing this or they're going, can you support this? And um, it's really interactive. Again, kind of like our membership, but it's, um, we don't have a funding intake deadline date. We've been asked a couple of times, you know, should we do that? And I kind of, rightly or wrongly, I always push back and say, limits on when we have a fund, they become just a funding component. Whereas, as if we get a request for some funds, we start to become a partner in that project. And to me, that's key. We need to be the partner in the project. We need to be driving the projects on behalf of our members. Um, however, that project gets you know gets set up, um, <clears throat> and that's another thing I think we need to talk about is just the collaboration on the landscape for being successful. It's not just Wild Sheep Society of BC. It's it's First Nations, it's guide outfitters, it's hunters that aren't part of an organization, it's BC Wildlife Federation, GABC. It's starting to become the whole collaborative approach, which really needs to happen. Um, for the benefit of conservation of sheep. If we're all talking the same language about conservation and we're not talking about which piece of the pie we get, because um, maybe when we're talking about piece of the pie, that's just a selfish attitude. It needs to be uh, that collaborative approach for the benefit of sheep and habitat mm-hmm. and landscapes. It's got to be kept. It's got to be collaborative, and we can't be leaving that component out. You know, we're going to have differences of opinion how we should get to an objective or a goal. But I think as long as we all take talking the same language and the same objectives, um, we're eventually going to get there. Um, and that's kind of what I'm seeing now is this whole approach of how we achieve. Um, conservation for wild sheep on the landscape. Very cool. So as a guy that's been in this conservation space, um, obviously donating and volunteering a lot of your time and energy and, and I mean, for sure money too. um, What keeps you going? Like what is it that, uh, that, 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 that keeps you going to these meetings and, and, and working for, for the, uh, you know, for all of us, right? Yeah, that's a great question, Tyler. And it's, um, I, I think there's a, again, there's a lot of components in there. You know, first off, that, you know, kind of comes to mind. It's the people you get to meet mm-hmm. um, from all over North America. And like I said, I was fortunate enough to sit on a Wild Sheep Foundation board for six years. And, you know, Kyle Stelter, our president, still sits on the Wall Street Foundation board, but just the interaction with all the other chapter and affiliates and all those other like-minded people from all over North America, it is, 
if you ever get to go to a chapter in affiliate meeting, go and it'll blow your mind uh, how those people interact and are so like minded and so passionate about the conservation component. So, like, you know, first and foremost, I mean, you know, people kind of keep you, keeps you going. But being actually getting out on the landscape and being actually getting involved in projects, um, it's it's so rewarding. It just re-energizes that component. So I was fortunate enough to get out this um, early spring and help with the treatment on the Fraser and um, just actually be interactive with while she, you know, taking people samples, following, blindfolding, um, just doing that. And once you've done that, it keeps you, it keeps you driven. It keeps you going back. But it is so rewarding. I, I guess if I kind of back it up just a hair, I've been fortunate enough that as I did get involved when we were still doing transplants of sheep, um, well, sheep side of BC, we managed to get involved with sheep transplants. And we, I had a horse to stock trailer, so I managed to move all the sheep in the stock trailer. So I was fortunate enough to do transplants from the National Oldest to Okanagan Mountain Park. Oh, wow. So we did a couple of trans, couple of transplants there. We did transplants out of Kamloops, um, from the Harper Ranch, um, and from just below the airport. <clears throat> and some of those sheep went to, onto the Fraser Big Bar. Um, Alkali Lake, so went back to Okanagan Mountain Park. Um, so I was fortunate enough to move probably about 100 sheep around the province. Um, and again, very hands-on, um, capturing sheep and putting them in the, in the horse trailer, again, taking samples and just being up close in person with them. That part, I, I can't explain how rewarding that is. So um, if we ever get the opportunity where we are transplanting sheep or, or we're doing something with sheep, um, if, if you get that opportunity, Tyler, take it. And, yeah. And I can't, like I say, words don't explain how rewarding it is, but it is, um, it's probably as rewarding as harvesting your first sheep. But you're giving so much back by doing what you're doing. Um, that it kind of overshines that component. Mm -hmm. So, so that, you know, that part keeps you going, but then as you know, as you go to meetings and you were trying to do this and we're trying to do that again, you're down with those around those other like-minded people. And like you say, every time you go to a meeting or you're on a meeting, you come back, you energize and just revitalizes you, revitalizes you yourself. And you just, you just keep pushing ahead. Um, you know, I said a long time ago, I, I realized disease was going to be the issue that would limit our wild sheep populations in BC. And I said, if we ever get disease sorted out within the province, that all we were focused on is habitat work for the wild sheep, then I could probably retire from doing what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and sometimes I think we're getting close to the disease issue, and sometimes I'm not, but. Um, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're as close as we have ever have been about resolving the issue. Um, I just hope we get over the last hurdle. Um, so that's a lot of what's kept, kept you going. And, and I think, uh, I remember driving up north with my buddy Mike Southern. And every time we were driving up north, we'd be talking about what can we do for sheep and how do we, we could do this at the convention. We could probably raise some money this way or 
what about doing this? And so there's, you know, there's a lot of people that are still interacting, but then you've also got those mentors that were there. Um, you know, when I, when I first got on the board, um, Glenn Coons, though, he was our president for a few years and he was, you know, the same kind of person, but very, very engaged. And he said, he said something to me, he goes, you know, we've got enough studies. Um, we really need to be doing spending our money and getting that money on the ground that is going to benefit our sheep population. So that's something I always kind of carry when we go into projects that is it going to have an impact. And yeah, we've had to do some studies and we've had to put science behind um, what we're doing, especially around disease. And that science is going to become critical. So we've had to do some studies, but ultimately there's going to be a benefit to sheep that are they're living out there every day on, in, in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you guys, uh, you guys are and have been doing phenomenal work for a long time. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of reading all those old, uh, sixties, seventies and eighties ranching slash hunting books. And many of them talk about how, uh, the, the work that, uh, different conservation organizations have actually, uh, had, had sheep doing, uh, doing well and on the way to doing well. Right. Um, which seems to be the, I don't know, standout case of that in our province, right. Is there, is there any other species that has taken as well to our conservation efforts as sheep? I think back, you know, earlier, I think a lot, most of our species did benefit, um, you know, from uh, the original conservation components. And I think what's, what's deferred it probably is industry. And then maybe I'll probably get yelled at maybe by some of your listeners, but, um, you know, habitat components have, have changed. And I, you know, I'll point to logging and logging practices. I'm not going to blame the industry, but we've allowed it to happen. Government's allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. And the industry is going to do it because it's profit related. And if they can do it, that's obviously why they'll do it. But we need to make a significant shift now from what industry demands are on the landscape around logging or mining and have a more of a holistic approach on how we're going to, what we're going to do on the landscape. So it's not going to be detrimental to moose, elk, deer, sheep, mm-hmm. um, and make it fully interactive where we can still have industry out there. And we can still have sustainable logging, um, but it's not, it's still going to be beneficial to wildlife. So we're going to have to leave trees where we need to leave trees in right locations. We're going to have to have grasslands where there's supposed to be grasslands. We can't keep putting fires out and allowing tree and growth. Um, to happen where grassland should be, which is obviously sheep habitat or mule deer habitat. Mm-hmm. So we need to be focused on how we can achieve these objectives. And I think that's something again, and I keep saying we need to sit down with industry and have these discussions because there's going to be room on the landscape for everybody. <clears throat> but until we're all sitting at the same table having that discussion, we're not going to achieve that objective. And government's successful pretty successful about keeping us segregated and not being able to kind of talk to the right people to achieve those goals. And, you know, if, if that's the case, then I think we have to either engage with industry and say, we need to be doing X 
Um, and we started doing that at the Okanagan around some of our burn objectives. Um, you know, John Davies is a great uh, supporter of ours, but he's also a, he does a lot of our burn planning and stuff and he's reached out to Golan's and they've actually helped with, you know, logging here and not logging locations and putting out fire breaks for communities. And, you know, that's a benefit that, you know, we, we were looking at it, I guess, if it's, you know, when we looked at the Okanagan, we said, when I was living there, I said, we need to do this for, these are where all our sheep herds are. What can we do? This is where we need to send trees out. This is where we need to burn. So we kind of started looking at all these locations and John started assessing them uh, and analyzing all these. And then we started to head down the path of where we could actually do stuff. So we were successful in doing some thinning projects um, kind of on the east side above Penticton, Penticton Creek and Ellis Creek. Um, we did a couple of thinning projects in there and then looking at trying to get some burns in there. And then that's been taken over by wildfire and they're starting to do some of those projects. So, you know, that's a case of where we did work with industry. We did work with, with towns. How do we protect those towns from, you know, let's put some fire breaks and let's move that, that timber line back a bit away from our communities and we're expanding into those areas that we can be, again, you know, having that collaborative approach, um, of making that difference. So I think that's what's going to happen on a larger scale throughout the province around logging, around mining, um, you know, whatever that is. Whatever we do on the landscape out there, it's going to have an impact on wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just something we need to realize and we need to be able to address it. We're not going to mitigate it all, but let's mitigate 90% of it instead of not mitigating 10% of this is how I look at it right now because, you know, you can look at roads, the amount of roads we have in the province, the amount of harvestable timber that's left, the amount of rounds, um, you know, beetles, beetle logging that went on. Mm-hmm. All these all these different things that have happened on the landscape, but what are we going to do to change that to make sure that we can go in the right direction Um to get these forests back and then start to make a sustainable logging industry again because the way that we're logging right now is not sustainable and I think we've got past that point. So we're going to have to slow the logging component down a bit, I would think, and then try and get that forestry back to where we need to and make it interactive throughout, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I read a book recently and I'll... I'll I'll, I'll leave out the name and the author of it, but, um, he was talking about how, when they were moving into a particular area that I love to hunt today, um, when they were first cutting it, they had promised all the different, um, you know, hunting outfits and, um, biologists that were working in the area that they were going to do this really methodical kind of time-based cutting strategy where they would cut one block and not be back there to cut the neighboring block until the first block had matured, yada, yada. And, uh, I think over the course of only a couple of years, they had, uh, they had cut all of it and, uh, money drives a lot of it. It seems. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's driven, but again, I think it comes back to me. I remember I brought it up with our guys <clears throat> on board. Is you, you, everybody needs to start looking at FERPA and how FERPA is used and how there's no accountability through FERPA. 
uh, which is uh, how it was actually announced. Uh, I should remember, but it, you might have to look it up, Tyler. <laughs> in the, yep. the listeners know, but uh, forest range practices. Uh, I'm going to screw it up. But anyways, it's got all the components for wildlife, for fish, um, for logging, um, and how everybody needs, needs to manage to these 10 directives. But the managers don't really manage to those directives because they're forestry industry driven. So they're not managing to those directives or they're not doing, putting the science behind what they need to be putting behind to make sure they are looking after wildlife or they are looking after our streams for fish. Um, and there's no accountability created within FERPA to say that you're not, that manager's not doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of stuff. And I think if people want to look at it, they'd be quite upset once they started looking at where there's missed opportunities with how FERPA was created and what it was meant to do. And that is almost that collaborative approach, but it's kind of been used in that collaborative approach. Yeah, it's uh, Forest and Range Practices Act. And for folks that want to see it, it's under the legislation and regulation pages on uh, the provincial websites there. It's pretty. Thank you. No worries. Interesting (laughs) stuff for sure. Um, So one thing I do want to get into is... I missed the perfect segue because I wanted to talk to you more about conservation stuff here, but you mentioned, uh, the, the work, the conservation work that you do being as satisfying as harvesting your first sheep or killing your first sheep. Um, so I'd love to hear about you maybe as a young guy getting, getting into the, into sheep country. Yeah, it's probably the, I guess if they, I'll start back off. So me and my buddy Rod Ellis, um, we were, we were started, we, you know, everybody was going to the cooties and hunting elk and we had a friend of ours, Doug Field, that lived in, um, just in Brown Birch, just south of Dawson Creek. Mm-hmm. And then we said, well, we're going to go to Dawson Creek for another news hunting. So we went news hunting up there for four or five years and we was, you know, we were successful every year in harvesting our moose. And, and we said to Doug, you know, we want to go, we want to do a horseback trip. We want to go to the mountains. So this is kind of how it started off. Um, so he said, well, before we do a horse trip to the mountains, you guys have to see if you can do the horse thing. So we actually did a spring bear and come horseback um, down towards the Pine River and we spent a week out in the bush and <clears throat> uh, this bear hunt. Doug was fairly feeling with our with our um talents, but uh, he said, Yeah, we'll we can we'll start planning to do this first trip to the mountains. So mm-hmm. um we did two or three trips to the mountains and then we um I think one year we decided to we said, Well, we're gonna do a flying trip. So we we did it we were gonna fly in and we flew into um kind of the planet and hiking out in the back of the hiking over to some uh mm-hmm. It was kind of a combination of sheep caribou hunt. And so we landed on the lake and um first day we got out and we started hiking up the valley and I think it was the next day. Um Doug was fortunate enough to shoot a caribou. And we got this caribou and um right at the same 
basically the same time as that, he his soul on his boot came off. So it's like, yeah, we've got to get back to the lake. And there were some other guys in there, and we knew they were flying out. So we headed back to the lake with this caribou. We figured we'd give them to fly that out. Mm-hmm. Um, when we got down there, his boot soles off. So we uh, we had duct tape top for to get him down there. And then uh, we flew the caribou out. And the pilot was had to make two trips with these guys, and um, Doug had something important else, and grabbed him another pair of boots. And he flew back in, and then he, he flew the other guy out, and he ferried us over, and then flew Doug another pair of boots in, and then we ended up hiking out of. And that was kind of evolving into our first sheep hunt, so we kind of headed uh, headed south into the mountains and hiking around the mountains, um, looking for sheep and we were looking looking in the right places. But I don't think there were sheep on the mountain, so we were looking in the wrong places. So sheep were on specific mountains, the way it was on specific mountains. They're not gonna be on every every mountain. And yeah. so that was kind of our first lesson. But that trip we ended up harvesting two two great um, old rams, both myself and Doug. Um, I think mine was 12 and a half years old, and I think Doug's may have been 10 and a half. Oh, wow. 11. So, two really great old warrior rabbits. And that was, you know, that was the first trip. And, you know, <laughs> I remember what we had. Like, you know, we start talking about gear and what you take in the mouth. We had those tacks, we had no pants. And because we didn't, we had no idea what, what the weather was going to be like. And, we had this old, like we had a three-man Canadian entire tent that was useless. If it really got rained on, we would have been screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so just a different components of the gear, but that was that was really our first sheep hunt. And then um, I got hooked up with my buddy Mike Southern, um, who got me on, involved with the Wild Sheep Society, and I did a did a couple of jet boat trips with uh, with Mike and another buddy of ours, Ken. And, uh, we were fortunate to harvest a couple more stone sheep with those guys as well. So, so that was kind of the, the, the segue into the sheep hunting. And then I, we kind of did a sheep trip for probably six, seven years. Ended up going to the Northwest Territories um, to harvest the doll sheep up there. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. Very so, cool. Very cool. And so you stayed after it. Yeah, still, uh, still. Uh, I did a stone sheep hunt last year. I went with Mike. Uh, we kind of flew in, the backpacked in around. I was packing my bow, and Mike was carrying the gun. Saw lots of sheep, but nothing that, um, nothing that really got us all excited. But uh, it was still a great trip. Just you know, again, you get out of the mountains and you see all these rams on the mountains. And just yeah, it's fantastic. Like you say, you just get just to get out there, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, I mean, so we've kind of covered a lot of the bases here. And uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I kind of always ask biologists, I mean, I just had the podcast I recorded just before this one was um, the mountain goat biologist, Laura Balix. And um I asked her, you know, what's the what is what does she think the biggest threat to mountain goats was? Well, it was and is <laughs> rather. Um, and, you know, I, as a guy that's been involved in 
wildlife conservation at a local level here in BC for over 25 years, I'd be curious to ask what, what is uh, maybe a more broad question. Um, and because we, you and I have the same affliction of, of being kind of diehard hunters. What's the biggest, um, what's the biggest risk to hunting in BC right now? And, and the, the follow-up question ahead of time, how do we address it? The biggest risk to hunting right now is the education of the non-hunting public and how we interact with that hunting public and how we represent ourselves on social media. Um, you know, I was joking with Kyle the other day about it, you know, just as frustrated as I am with all this rhetoric, um, you know, why don't we have our own protest down Douglas Street on a Friday afternoon after work <laughs> and make sure, but instead of being, you know, dressed in camera and stuff, we're all dressed in business suits and we represent the professionals, you know, whatever background we come from. Mm-hmm. is represented because it's a misnomer that hunters are all rednecks with their flannel shirts and camo and they're running around with their guns doing whatever. Yeah. Um, and that to me is is the biggest thing that we need to change. And you know, that's what one campfire is about. It's about that interaction and about you know what we as hunters do that really represent. Um it's not that when you're gun shooting with the gun rack in the back of your truck kind of person that's it's doing that. It's it's all those misnomers that I think they're out there. But the other component of that is is the multicultural component that British Columbia has become. Um that people from other parts of the world have moved to BC, they don't understand maybe that whole you know, what Canada is and how it evolved from the fur trade to where we are and how passionate we are about hunting and conservation and the North American model of of conservation. None of that has been probably remade. So all they realize is, you know, this is Vancouver, this is downtown Victoria. Um, This is our own little world. And I see it. You know, every day I listen to an AM station and it's a, and I listened to all the stuff that the announcers were talking about. And not that it's not, um, you know, newsworthy, but trying to get a conservation of a sheep issue on the news or in the media is damn near impossible. And I, you know, I talked to, you know, I, did, I was on breakfast television last year and I still, you know, I don't get why the news or the media doesn't cover a conservation story or a wildlife story, um, you know, once a week about what's going on, whether it's Wild Sheep Society of BC or BTWF or whatever group it is, what we're doing for wildlife and what we're doing for habitats. Um, why isn't that represented? So I, to me, I see that as our biggest struggle. If we can educate people what we're about, what we do, why we're so passionate about it, and again, I think it could be, if we're too successful at it, we could end up with a bit more people in the backcountry, as we're seeing now, mm-hmm. um, partly driven by COVID. Um, yeah. But again, that's back on, on how those wildlife, on how that wildlife uses their habitat. So I, I think the education component 
is the biggest thing that we need to change. We need to change that whole perspective. How we go about doing that is engage. And again, I've had this conversation numerous times is on a one-on-one with a non-hunter. Um, and we talk to those people. We can probably have agreeing with our philosophies on what needs to happen. But on a, if you assume we can't have those one-on-one conversations with everybody in BC. Mm-hmm. And the biggest struggle is how do you get to that mass component? Um, yeah. Obviously, social media is one aspect of it. And again, like I said, that's where one campfire and there's other programs out there. We're looking at another thing. And obviously, we just, um, you know, did, uh, you know, we just, I delivered 20,000 letters to the legislature for our Act Now campaign, mm-hmm. which is geared around that component of, you know, losing opportunities. And I hate the word opportunities, but losing that chance to get out of, in the wilderness to hunt a specific species, whether it's a bear or a sheep, it doesn't really matter. I still love to go out and bear hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, do I harvest a bear in a year? I think I've harvested a bear in 10 years, but I've been out probably six or seven years now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not out of all the harvest system that we're getting out there. Obviously, I'm looking for a specific animal and I want to be able to shoot it with my bow. Um, but I think how, how do we have that? How do we tell that story to somebody unless you can actually sit down face to face? Yeah. And, and because social media is one, like a 15 to 30 second. Um, message or retainable message component that's really tough to get that out there. So I'm not 100% sure how we do it, but I think we're starting to move in that direction. And I think all the groups are doing the same thing. They're starting to be collaborative and do that. And, you know, somebody that's not possible to view bears or they want to take pictures of wildlife. We all want the same thing that we do. The only difference is that we're making a harvest and we're making, we're, you know, we're, we're killing an animal. Mm-hmm. We're harvesting an animal. But other than that, they want the same thing. They want to be able to see that grizzly bear over there. They want to be able to see it in its natural habitat. The same way as hunters want to be able to see that grizzly bear in there. I'd still love to go back. And, you know, I don't need to shoot a grizzly bear every year or every five years, but. I'd still like to be able to go out there and to visit there if I had that chance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think, you know, those are the things I think is, is if we start talking to people, those are the conversations I think we engage in. And I think when we do, we don't get mad. We don't swear at people. We don't we engage and have that conversation. And we present our perspective. We also need to listen to their perspective because sometimes people will have a perspective that is, again, it's going to be different, but it's like it's not going to be that far off of what ours can be. Yeah. So I think that's something that needs to be, uh, you know, I think relate to everybody. If everybody could do that, I think, you know, if everybody went out and talked to one person or five people, all of a sudden we're starting to affect mass change. Mm-hmm. Instead, I think we bury our heads in the sand a little bit and we just confine ourselves to our, our, our own groups. And, and again, I made no reference to religion here, but we're preaching to the converted if we're just talking to them. Just, yeah. We need, 
we need to get outside of our bubble and be able to expose ourselves and be open to getting criticized and not be afraid of being criticized. Um, and yeah, there is the radicals out there. And obviously we, we can see that. I mean, I, I was working downtown and it was the Ferry Creek protesters down there. And no, I agree. I don't think we should be cutting down the old growth forest to where we've cut them to at this point in time because again, that's habitat that's affecting a bunch of species in there. Mm-hmm. But you know, they protested, but then they took red paint and threw it on a statue. And then somebody's got to go clean that up. Yeah. So how is that beneficial to your cause by having for lack of a better word, because it would have been taxpayers that paid for it to get that cleaned up. But also, what are you damaging by the environment by throwing the red paint? Because I don't care what kind of paint is leaving this water base, it's still got some chemical in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the rhetoric around some things needs to be, you know, you're going to have that perspective. I think if we have a commerce perspective and we represent ourselves, Correctly, respectfully, and be collaborative about it. I think that's how we're going to win moving forward um, and, and manage to keep hunting on the landscape for the people that are passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I had Steve Hamilton on the podcast with Greg um, talking about One Campfire and kind of the One Campfire initiative and all that stuff. And I mean, it's great. I couldn't agree more with, with what One Campfire is doing. And uh, I mean, we've kind of, we've kind of made it a little bit of our, our mission here on the podcast to help give people the ammo that they need. And, and one of the ways that I'm trying to do that is by asking guys like you. And um, I mean, asking people outside of the hunting space um like the biologist that we had on on the last episode laura um you know how how, like what's your reason for hunting why do you hunt how can we explain that um i mean laura laura gave a a 15 minute explanation of why hunting is good from a science perspective but one of the one of the best answers we've had so far i think is um uh, when we had Jim Shockey on and, and I said, Jim, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with, you know, um, the non-hunting majority and how do we, um, how do we get them to turn a leaf? I don't, I can't remember the exact wording of the question, but he said, you know, Tyler, the, the deal is, is he goes 10% of the population hunts, right? These were rough numbers, obviously. And he goes, 10% is the extreme anti-hunter, vegan, whatever, right? And he goes, that 80% in the middle is kind of ours to lose. And kind of what he was saying has exactly lined up with um, my experience. And I mean, probably your experience too, where when you actually take the time to have these one-on-one face-to-face conversations with people, or even on social media, when you, when you get into it and you, you explain your why and what you're trying to achieve and, and be honest about it too, all at the same time, um, people are usually pretty receptive, I think. And I think that's something that as a hunter, it's really easy 
to be super jaded. And like you said, you know, swear at people and be aggressive or be angry or whatever. Right. It's when people are coming after something that we're so passionate about and something that we love so much, it's, it's, it's almost impossible not to get fired up, but I think it's important that it's sort of, uh, it's sort of our fight to lose. Right. Totally is Tyler. And I think, um, you know, we've been losing that battle for 30, 40 years now, at least. Mm-hmm. And because the numbers were so much higher with hunters in the field, um, you never thought that we'd get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and totally. And I mean, I, yeah, we use those numbers as well. Yeah, 80% of that's what we need to influence. And how do we go about influencing that? And that, like you said, having a one hour conversation that one of the first podcasts they did with Adam Yankee and I said we need to go take this to Whistler we need to engage people in Whistler and have that conversation about why we do this so you know what's your perspective this is our perspective yeah and you start talking but you know don't look for differences when you're talking to somebody you're going to be you know if they're coming from a um you know, further left position than you than you are. And I don't mean politically, but um, you just start looking for the common ground first, mm-hmm. right? And okay, what do we have in common? What do we want to see together? Yeah, and start discussing that. And then, like I said, you know, I was alluding to before is if we start looking at all our common objectives, we're going to find that we have probably. 80% of our common objectives from whatever perspective you're coming from, they're going to be common ground. There's going to be that 10 to 20% that we are not going to agree on. You may not agree on us killing an animal or harvesting an animal. Mm-hmm. That part we can't change, but let's look at the common ground. If we agree on that 80%, let's not fight over this 20% that we're never going to change. Your mind's not going to change. My mind's going to change. But we're still gonna have all these animals because we're only harvesting at a three percent rate, two to three percent harvesting any species within this province. Mm-hmm. And like I said, on the first one, if there's a conservation concern, then that's when we need to be looking at it, and that's when we need to say, okay, then maybe we shouldn't be hunting it. Maybe we should be doing something different. But let's look at what we can do because it's not about hunting that last animal and and taking it off the landscape completely. It needs to be building those populations and looking at where we need to be and what's an objective. You know, I you know, I talked a little bit about the Fraser River project a bit, but there used to be forty five hundred sheep on the Fraser from Lillooet to Williams Lake. Mm-hmm. And I think right now we're under a thousand. Yeah. Right. So you know one of my objectives when I when you start looking at that and you know we made this a project committee and a well sheep study of BC board objective is we want to establish this population. Same as a regional biologist, we want to establish that to what it was. Um, you know, when you go to Churn Creek and you see 600 sheep on the Churn Creek flats. Yeah. How, how cool would that be, right? And, you know, but again, there's habitat, there's predation, logging that's, that's occurred. So there's all these changes that happened in the last 30 years. Um, but we want to bring that back to what it should be, and we want to, you know, we should be leaving it better than when we got it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and right now, it's not better than what we received it. Uh, um, 
and I'm not referencing you, Charlotte. I'm looking at myself going, what could I have done different that I missed that radical shift where those populations did? Where was my voice at that point? So I think, you know, again, that's part of probably still why I'm as engaged as I am because I still feel there's opportunities that we can still leave our sheep populations in this province better than, than what they were and try and get them back to what they were in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, in certain locations yeah yeah it's so important and uh i mean yeah like, like when you when you approach these conversations in a um you know um honest way with people and um kind of an honest delicate and thoughtful way you often have a good result i find and i think it's so important so um yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it's like uh, you almost have to. The reason I say you have to engage in that conversation is because in order for somebody to trust what you're saying, you have to actually engage for a few minutes before you can start to void your opinion. Because if you voice your opinion immediately, you're probably going to turn that person off. So you're not even get a given chance to actually um, open up. Mm-hmm. until you find out who they are. It's almost like our conversation when we started the podcast is, um, you know, we hadn't talked at all. We'd just been texting. Mm-hmm. But just just to kind of get to know one another, um, you know, where you're from, what you do, um, family. Um, we know everything about each other, but I mean, it, it gives you that base relationship that you can engage in a conversation. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you, you can't be afraid to engage with a stranger as hard as that may be. And I know that's not for everybody. Yep. Um, but that's part of what it is, is being able to engage with somebody that's, that is a stranger and, and having that conversation. And it is going to be difficult at times. Yeah. Um, but it's critical to being successful, I think, in, you know, I think if, you know, and I don't know whether anybody else has said this, but if we lose hunting off the landscape and we're not allowed to hunt anymore, it's not going to be beneficial for wildlife. Wildlife will suffer even more. Yeah. Because there's nobody else, there will be nobody out there caring for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know the amount of time that I put in and our board puts in for wild sheep conservation. Um, if we're not allowed to hunt, we're not allowed to do that. Those dollars aren't going to be there to <clears throat> for sheep patient or sheep habitat. So you know, you know, right now WSSBC's put over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for the last two or three years on the ground for wild sheep conservation in this province. Mm-hmm. That's not going to that's not going to be there anymore. Yeah, there's there's not going to be a voice for sheep anymore. That's all going to be lost, and then. Is it, you know, where, who's the voice? Who's going to make up for that lost component? And I think it comes back to, you know, the original thing we were talking about when Coralie asked me, why are sheep doing okay in the province? It's because they've got an advocacy group mm-hmm. that is conservation-minded. Yes, we are hunters, but our number one purpose is to make sure that we are keeping and putting sheep on the mountain in perpetuity for British Columbians. Absolutely. 
That's awesome. That's a good spot for us to end. I think Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate everything that you do and I appreciate uh, your time and your hard work and yeah. Awesome. Next time you come on, I'm going to have to get you to tell some more hunting stories and we'll have to talk archery. Definitely can uh, definitely dive into the archery and the, uh, yeah, some of the hunts there. So there's a few stories. There <laughs> I, don't, I don't doubt it. I mean, uh, the, the hardest thing to get, get going, get somebody talking about is a sheep hunter about sheep hunting stories. So maybe we'll forego those and hear about some elk hunting stories or something else. <laughs> yeah. There's a few, probably more moose and bears, goat stories and stuff, but no, I, like I said, I really appreciate your opportunity, Tyler. And, uh, just to talk, you know, get the word out to your listeners. Um, yeah, it's always great. It's always great to be on a podcast and just share um, thoughts and you know what Wild Sheep Society BC is doing. I didn't really dive into projects that much tonight, but uh, you know we're doing some unbelievable stuff on the landscape for sheep within the province. So that's you know, that's probably a whole other podcast. But uh, yeah, I really really appreciate the opportunity to, to to chat with you and talk to you tonight. For sure. Well, we're we're banging the uh, Wild Sheep Society BC drum as hard as we can, and we uh, we urge everyone we can to. Um, contribute as much or uh as much as they can and uh you know the the payment plans and all that kind of stuff make it make it affordable you can do something that fits your budget to help out uh hunting here in bc and it's it's huge you guys are doing a great job no I, that's awesome Tyler. and you know just that i had I had a member ask a question and he goes if if i could only afford one thing where would the best place for me to spend my money? I said, if you can spend your money, buy raffle tickets. Mm -hmm. So all those raffles that we do, that money goes right back on the ground into a project. And it also gives you, you know, gives you the opportunity to win something. So if you've got X amount of dollars and you want to do the most for conservation, buy a raffle, tick, uh, raffle ticket. And I don't know whether you were, whether you talked about this or not, but the last raffle we just launched um, the sheep camp um, sold out in 36 hours. <laughs> awesome. You, know, you, you can't get that kind of support. So like, I mean, that's our membership and non-members buying those raffle tickets. I mean, it's that to me just blows, blows my mind and just shows you what um, the belief for membership that, that they have in the board and what Ross you said was BC is doing. So like I say, truly appreciate it, Tyler, for uh, getting the word out and supporting us. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you want to support the podcast, please check out the gear on our website at wildernesslocals.net.